0: I wanted to start the discussion by picking up and away from what you presented tonight and a couple questions about solo work. Uh, the first part is, do you think of solo playing as a foundation for the other kinds of playing you do in your own work, your own uh, not interpreting other people's music because you play with a huge range of people, but in your own kind of creative arc? And I'm thinking of someone like Anthony Braxton who started with solo work as a way to deal with not finding people to collaborate with on the level he wanted to very early in his years in Chicago and created a whole kind of uh, what he described as language types to help him kind of create a context to perform an extended concert, uh, sort of a way to construct things. And out of those language types, Really started to develop a whole world of activity. Does um, the solo work? You know, you said you you did your first solo recording here yeah. about twenty years ago, mm-hmm. and I'm assuming you did concerts before the oh, yeah. recording. Oh yeah. Oh um, Did that lead to other aspects of your creative work? Did it develop from solo work, like as in the case yeah. of Braxton, or is it just parallel activity to the other things you do? I think. It I mean, I think
1: it all feeds. Mm
0: -hmm. each other and so I can't really say
1: like that you know that I start with alone and then I develop something and then I project it out onto other Mm -hmm. things. A lot of what I um, do both solo wise and when I'm writing for other people is try to just start not with um, so much of an agenda as much as sort of an openness to see well what would this be Mm -hmm. you know and that's part of maybe why it kind of results in a pretty wide range of of uh, types of things that people might not even necessarily immediately relate, but it, it's not so much that, like Braxton, really has sort of a uh, a, um, uh, a very focused uh, idea about how his compositions should be and what what what's going on with them, and uh, and I don't really work that way, so so it's uh, it's a different thing. I mean, I don't write. For instance, everyone changes all the time. But when I was studying with him, which is partly maybe why it's relevant to ask about him, um, a yes, he had a great deal of influence on me. Um, but he, I was when I came to him, I had been studying composition. Um, my my undergraduate degree is composition, not performance, and uh, and hanging out with the East Coast scene and taking some lessons with Feldman, a lot more with Benita Marcus, um, but also other kind of very much European-oriented um, composers. And uh, and the way that they generally worked was either through some sort of post-serialist system or, or strictly intuitive. Um, and Braxton had a very kind of structuralist idea about how he would even write pieces. He'd say, oh, it's, my new piece is going great. I've done the entire rhythmic grid, and now I'm going to go back and apply the pitch logic. You know, and I said, I... I, I how do you write music that way you know but who cares because he writes the music and it sounds great so that's how he works Mm -hmm. it so on the other hand the thing that's really influential about his way of thinking about solo playing and writing music in general that applies to everything is is not so much what the languages are um, as much as that you really recognize a language you know Braxton was one of his advices uh, to the whole class one day was uh, listen to whatever you want just really listen you know and it's the same thing it's kind of like write whatever you want but try to really write it and one way to to look at it that that resonated for me really easily maybe from other influences was sort of a sense of atomicization you know to to not to not just see things as big ready-made objects but as things made of parts mm-hmm. and more and more parts down i worked for a while in a modem factory and you know each little resistor is a part um and still that part is made up of parts but uh but you know what i'm saying is so uh, so when you're when you're playing or when you're writing or when you're thinking about something you try to and i know you do too try to identify sort of the itness of the thing and work with that um be very specific about right the parameters. it's right and so and that's the Braxton lesson for me more than the specific ones that he identified, although they're really universal. So, yeah. so it's, not like a, it's not like, well, he's just got his own crazy thing. But, you know, I don't have to think about the specifics that he uh, proposes as much as be aware of, of this idea that things are made up of things and you can conserve or try to conserve material. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's actually the, the big story uh, about his early first solo concert that he would at least talk about was that, uh, that he um, he got up in front of everybody that he really admired and he was a badass and he had all of his stuff and he and uh, and after like ten minutes he was like oh shit what am I gonna do now yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. you maybe heard the story right yeah. and that's when he said well I've got to really kind of say well what is that thing and then try to work with that thing and so but that kind of uh, you find that in other disciplines both within music and outside of music any kind of creative
2: work and so mm-hmm.
1: Next part of the question. Next
0: part of it was more in terms of the way you approach the cello and the oh, extensions of the sounds. Like, uh, yeah. how did you how did you build on that, or how did you get to the point? Because I've worked with a lot of people, and suddenly they say, "Oh, I'm working with electronics now," and that's usually a catastrophe because they don't really know how they work. <laughs> but I've known you for a long time. And you you've really developed the system of of electronics and pedals as an instrument i mean you really really like really that, it's, there's no question about it um yeah. and that kind of uh, discipline and rigor to which you've approached it is that built on the rigor and discipline of dealing with the cello as an acoustic instrument and finding new sounds yeah. on that and then expanding out into this other world or how it's, do you think yeah, about that I, um
1: well you probably yeah i, I mean i i talked about this in other interviews, and I think you know this already, um, I uh, got, uh, a cello was left at the house when I was about two, and uh, and my parents didn't know anything about playing the cello, and even thought, well, and I was like, I, you know, love the cello, well, you're way too small, but they'd let me mess around with it, you know, and um, and my dad was trying to build guitars, but had no idea how-to and the frets are like an inch apart and you know and there's only three strings but and it's square but you know it's a guitar and then he'd be disappointed that he couldn't play you know whatever uh you know go tell aunt roadie or something Mm -hmm. i don't know um that he couldn't play uh folk music of the of the style he liked gene richie a lot i think he would have liked it too something like a dulcimer but anyway so then these would become toys for me and then according to this is more because I don't really remember according to my parents uh, the the only toys that I really cared about from when I was in the crib were things that made some kind of sound and and so I was just messing around with sound and I really thought the cello was the coolest thing in the world mm-hmm. but it wasn't until 4th grade in school when the music teacher came and yeah I want to play the cello and and they had a half-sized cello, and uh, and so I started taking cello lessons then, you know, but I'd already been messing around for a long time, not thinking at all about, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like my entry into the cello was through playing, uh, you know, beginning cello mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And then, sort of, you know, uh, my um, my. Parents, uh, their friends. My parents also liked a lot of like kind of unusual music, and electronic music was sort of around all the time. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, I selected everybody could select a subject for the year to study, and I I chose electronic music. I got to take my class to a music school, uh, a music store to get a demo of one of the new Moog. Uh, synthesizers, and, you know, and I had to explain, you know, the oscillators and filters, and, you know, so I was into that already. Mm -hmm. When I was, i have been playing the cello about two years when I really, 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 the big thing that I wanted more than anything was a pickup for the cello, Mm -hmm. and um, so I got a pickup, and then I won, like, a raffle at the music store, and I got a wah-wah pedal, and...
0: (laughs) So it was really early. Yeah, yeah, so I've been
1: doing kind of pickups and adding pedals since I can remember... Then about ninth grade, I did this horror, I wish I had a recording of some awful sort of mashup of some Sigmund Romberg sonata, uh, who you may be lucky not to know, <laughs> <laughs> and some other guy, and I kind of mashed them together, and I did it with like a phase shifter and a wah-wah and something else, and a friend of mine playing the piano part, I kind of arranged it for Fender Rhodes. and. did that at the high school, you know, talent show or something. um, Anyway, so yeah, so I've been kind of, then I was in like these kind of uh, goofy, everything from space jam and improvising to like a kind of, you know, the uh, the local music school had a kind of jazz creative octet thing that I was playing in and... And, and that's what killed jazz for me altogether. <laughs> <So, laughs> <laughs> I know really I, I had a gig with them that was on the radio and I thought my solo blew chunks and then my dad said, oh, I heard the radio and there was this cello player and I was like, man, I'm French, you hear this guy? And then, and then and they said, and it was you! And then I was like, oh man, you know, I really don't understand this music at all, you know, because I thought that was the most humiliating experience of my life and, you know, and then my dad's like, yeah, hey, it was great! And I'm like, fuck you, So. For about, the,
2: <laughs>
1: about a decade I only played in rock bands, New Wave mm-hmm. and, and then noise, downtown improvised fucked up shit. But mm-hmm. but I like I didn't even want to have anything to do with anything that was vaguely jazz-like.
2: Mm-hmm. So.
0: You still <clears throat> refer to uh, what you do this way anymore, but at a certain point, you called you're playing anti cello. Yeah, and um, and having I'm luck, the anti cello. You're the anti cello. <laughs> <laughs> glad that I'm, I'm asking the question to you then because this is this is the right source. Um, you know, I've I've been lucky enough to play for a long time with Fred in lots of different contexts, and one of the things that yeah, I really enjoy about working with you is um, part of where the question comes from. In terms of creative work or developing new ideas about approaching what you want to do, um, do you think in terms of, it's not the ideal word, but maybe it's like in opposition or kind of destructive tendencies as opposed to like, going along with the flow and constructive tendencies. And there's like really different ways to obviously approach making work. And in many cases, it's usually a combination of the two. Um, But one thing that I've always enjoyed about playing with you and is very unusual, not just in Chicago, but very often with American players until maybe more recently. And one thing that I've liked about working with Europeans is they can be more, um, in my experience, Antagonistic in the environment in a positive way, like knocking things around. Like it's going, the music's going in this direction. Let's say we're talking about an improvisation, and then it's like a left turn gets thrown in and and causes everyone to reassess what they're doing or how they think about it. And I have to say that in my experience, that's one of the things I've really loved about playing with you. That you're gonna you're gonna knock it around in a way that's that is constructive, but maybe has a Destructive tendency yeah. or an opposition. Yeah, yeah. Do you think about it that way, or is that just the way you you play? Or you know what I mean? Is the it way I play?
1: Mm. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't. Yeah, I don't really know. But um, I mean, you don't but I appreciate, say, I appreciate you saying like, that. Oh, it's going like this. And I'd like, like to challenge. It's not just in music and just in general. It's like I get perceived. I think a lot of times as being more ornery or or negative or whatever, then I really am as much as I just... it's well, I'm not like, saying negative. No, 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 no. Okay. I didn't say... Okay. I'm okay. just okay. saying cool. it outside cool. of... No, not you. Uh, okay. That, you know, it's like... There's sort of uh, devil's advocate hmm. uh, tendencies for me that, you know, I just almost can't resist pointing out foibles and arguments or... or you know, just things that don't really, you know, I mean, no, you. but, you know, and, and it's not so much that I, it's not that I don't like the person. In fact, I usually, if I don't like the person, I'm much more likely to just yeah, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like my friends and people that I care about and people that I'm working with and I, I like to push it around and I feel like I learned something from it. Deeper about the project, also mm-hmm. by not just like yeah, whatever, man, yeah, yeah. yeah of cool. questioning yeah. the process, right? You know, and may, and it's nice to hear if it sometimes helps other people understand something maybe that they might not have or or have a different perspective for a moment. But uh, but I think probably it's more just me in it or trying not to not trying to be an asshole, but trying to get more inside what it is, and understand
0: the logic of it. Yeah, kind of get into the get specifics it. that you mentioned and earlier. Maybe it's partly because
1: I, I can't really... Cu- I can't get by mm. on just, like, chops, you know? And so I have to kind of, like, the make up for it by trying to understand the logic of it more so that at least then what I do that's maybe inappropriate or not, like, you know, totally Disney concept of what I should be doing, you know? The anti-cellist is just more that, you know, it would say, oh... Oh, you play the cello. If they don't, they never heard me play, Oh, I love the cello. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and I'm like, Yeah, I love the cello too. I've devoted my life to making sound on the cello. But, you know, (laughs) and so... You know, and so then at a certain point, I was just like, "Oh, you know, I'm I'm not a cello player. I'm the anti-cello player." And uh, you know, and it's like in the almost like you know, you know, Jesus and the devil need each other or something. You know, that uh, those cello players they need to have me out there just to kind of <laughs> balance. That's a pretty serious role. That's why that's why a number of very very good cello players are friends of mine, in spite of. My You're doing the devil's work. That's right. That's right. They, you know, the devil's in the details. You
2: know. <laughs>
0: You on it a little bit when uh, you are talking about the different kinds of music you were playing uh, and like kind of n- the lack of interest in like a jazz trajectory or whatever. I mean you've played in so many different contexts as a quote unquote side person and then even in your own work as a composer groups that like really involve let's say experimental pop tendencies and whatever. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of music that you find most inspiring or, or intriguing that you want to explore and that motivate you to develop your own stuff? Sure. Um, it's or been stuff that a, maybe people don't know so much about. Yeah. Anymore.
1: It's a real parade of things. I have to say that's not like, you know, there's one particular yeah, yeah. thing. That's the same for you. I know, but, um, um,
0: what, what exactly? Well, just some different types different. of uh, either musicians yeah. or types of music that you find right. super inspiring that maybe don't fall under what people yeah. can conventionally consider. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not even
1: what what's conventional anymore. I guess is sort of the problem. But I have a much more um, mainstream side. You know, I mean, you. We were touring when Lady Gaga's first record dropped, and, oh, yes. and um, yeah, and I drove everybody in the band crazy. Man, this is amazing, you know.
2: And, <laughs> and, um,
1: you know, I uh, when I was little, I lived in Sweden for a couple of years, and if there's any Swedes here or out there in the internet land, uh, um, a lot of them who are my friends know that my favorite song when I was like five or six was the song "Hey Clown." And, um, you know, and I would listen to that. I kind of burned that, you know, up the way that, you know, later you would burn up other, like, improvised records or jazz records or whatever, you know, but again and again and again, and I just loved this song. And it turned out it was written by one of the guys who went on to form ABBA, so I had good taste. <laughs> 1967 or 66, or I don't know. But um, but anyway, you know, and just throughout the years, I, I like, always had this sort of simultaneous love of... of uh, Experimental music, um, I was, you know, it, it, like I mentioned briefly, my parents and their friends, but uh, they had kind of a pretty open-door policy uh, when I was a kid for artists and musicians and dancers. And so we had, like, jazz bass players living in the basement or experimental dancers in the attic or, or uh, you know, um, painters and ichthyologists and all kinds of <laughs> people from, like, weird scenes that would just crash sometimes for months and months years even at our house and 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 they would always have like you know some really cool weird thing you know like a John Cage record or something Mm -hmm. like this and you know and then my dad was buying records and so even though I was in Wilmington and Wilmington is a funny place uh it's close enough to Philly that you can go and see stuff but it's a little isolated but the DuPonts kind of own the state and that that was part of the luck that I had as a kid was uh, the DuPonts funded a program where uh, uh, kids in the public schools could get private lessons for 50 cents a week from a member wow. of the symphony right and so um, so you know so there was this kind of stuff or like in junior high and I really I, I feel like a dope I, in junior high there was That was that was the height of my jazz love, you know, because a lot of the kids in my school um, grew up in houses where their parents were like total Miles Davis freaks, you know, and whatever. And uh, so um, so like the band school room was kind of a, the school band room was a, kind of a, a nexus for hanging out and jamming. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then they had a program where like once a week, me and about six or seven other kids at the school got to go to the local music school in the afternoon during school time. I have like three hours with these two crazy old jazz musicians from Philly. And I don't know, it's not like I think that they're huge, but I would like to know, I'm sure now I could, I would find some records of these guys and they came down once a week. That's how bad it was in the 70s too, though, for jazz musicians. But that's, because also I went to this, uh, the jazz workshop it was called, every summer for like three summers at the state music school. And I had, like, private piano lessons with Roland Hanna, you know. And, uh-huh. and I'm, like, 12, you know. I have no business being there. Poor guy. It's like, oh, geez, you know, this kid. What the, all right, you know, do some more, you know, changes. Right, I know, he needed the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's terrible. But also, like, Peter Erskine ended up crashing in our basement. He was teaching there. And, you know, uh, Marvin Stamm, I don't even know him. But, um, oh, um, Don Sebesky mm-hmm. one summer I took arranging with Don Sebesky oh, you know it's like it's nuts anyway but Wilmington was this kind of place where they had some degree of that mm-hmm. you know Matt Shipp and I didn't meet till we were in New York but we grew up three blocks apart oh really That's awesome. his piano teacher was married to my piano teacher you know it's like a, oh, wow. a weird ass
2: <laughs> wow.
0: Jump from that to a related question. I don't know if you're still doing it, but for a while you were working at the MCA in the installation department. I The last time I worked there was uh, almost a year ago now. Okay. But, yeah. but I know that you obviously were involved in a bunch of the stuff that was being shown there in terms of mounting it and whatnot, but you also do visual art. you on your own. You work uh, with things. I'd like to. Yeah. And uh, I wondered if you could talk any a little bit about if that has had any impact on your your music at all, or just how you think about what you do.
1: Uh, mm, yeah, probably. I mean, everything. You know, like you mm-hmm. said, but. Uh, no, actually, um, mostly, I, I mean, I paint some, but that's mostly just for my own enjoyment. Um, and uh, I like making wire sculptures. Again, it's more like cartooning or, or drawing. Um, uh, mostly I've been doing stained glass for 25 years, continuously. But um, but I kind of got into that in, in high school. I actually had a part-time job working for a while for... Uh, woman who did stained glass, like really square, you know, just, you know, window mm-hmm. panels, uh, flowers and real, real nice, really good quality, professional, you know, traditional stained glass. So, so I worked, I worked for her and I was really into it and I had fun and, you know, I, I had to, like, it wasn't, I didn't just immediately even, I was studying for a while and then I, and then I was doing jobs for her and, uh, and, um, and then I didn't do it after high school until after grad school, when I was actually a little bit freaking out in a weird way that I. New York is, a, <clears throat> New York is a great city, um, but uh, but New York can really kind of, in a weird way, um, make everything for a lot of people. Uh, in their art form kind of their job in a weird way. And I wanted to have some kind of artistic thing that was totally not a job, that I wasn't trying to get a gig and I didn't care if anybody else paid any attention or whatever, I didn't have to get, I didn't have to try to get the knitting factory to book me and then hope some people came so they'd book me again, you know, Mm -hmm. and this kind of shit, you know, And, and which is fucked up. And so if anything, it helped me artistically to have some kind of creative outlet that I really didn't give a damn about, and I just purely did for myself, even though really that was the whole idea with the music, and had been for a long time throughout the 80s. I'd play a gig when somebody asked me, otherwise I wouldn't, and I'd go for long periods in my 20s kind of just at home shedding and, and making tape music and, you know. And, um, and then, you know, but then after you get out of grad school, you move back, now I'm going to really try to work, you know, mm-hmm. and you're working, you're working, you're working, and you have a day job. So you're like, you know, you just basically are just like running around all the time, just kind of work, 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 you know? And, and um, so I started doing stained glass then just as some little escape valve. And, but I really like it and I'm still doing it. And I'm working on a series now of, uh, LPs in glass that, uh, mm-hmm. that, um, I've got three done and okay. hoping for a dozen, but it may take it's at the pace I'm going, it'll be I'll be in my uh, I'll be on social security when
0: I find on. <laughs> uh one last question and then I'll turn it over to people if you have questions, ask Fred. Uh, it's kind of connected to your mentioning New York in this last stretch. Um, you did a bunch of work in New York, moved to Chicago, have been here for a long time now. You do, you've done lots of work overseas. I wondered if you could talk a little bit, and it's generalizations, of course, but uh, your perceptions of the differences of, like, working in New York, working overseas, working in Chicago, the benefits, the the non-benefits of those things.
2: Hmm.
1: Well, one thing about New York is that um, I toured some when I was in New York, but I didn't really care that much at all. and um, And it wasn't because I wasn't trying to do my best and, you know, it's just that uh, in New York, you kind of feel like everybody comes to New York, you know, mm. you're almost on tour just by, if you play at venues that people know, Roulette, Knitting Factory, whatever, you know, at the time, uh, you know, alternative museum or whatever, you know, I see gallery, you knew that the tourists are the cooler. I played the, I played Chris, I played a solo set on Christmas Eve once at the cooler. And it was packed. You know, there were no New Yorkers there. There were hardly any U.S. people. But there was Germans and Japanese people who were on vacation. And and they knew the cooler, so they went to the cooler. So, you know, so they said, why do I need to travel around? You know, I can play for the world right here. And actually, when I moved to Chicago, that was when it became more, like, aware that there's this whole network of people out in the world that, you know, Go to New York every now and then begrudgingly, but you know, <laughs> but are actually doing really interesting work and uh, and you know that I get along with. They have a better attitude in a weird way. So, you know, I mean, there's uh, the New York. The great thing about New York is so big. There's so many different scenes. So there's sort of like broad brush brush the town, but just within the sort of vibe that I was existing in, just felt like man, New York is all we need to care about. And mm-hmm. It's like the. LP, and, you know, you're in the very center. It doesn't hardly move at all. You just stay there, Canal Street down to, you know, up to 14th Street, and,
2: you
1: know, and it's everything you need. Why? You know, best of all possible worlds, <laughs> Something like that. So, but working in New York, uh, you know, in those days was different than now. I, the real estate situation there is so so crazy, and I haven't been living there in 20 years, so I don't know what it's like to work there. Chicago, I, I think it's... Uh, um, A much more uh engaged community in terms of people both you know musicians and people who just every now and then take some time out to listen to music Mm -hmm. and so and then in europe i feel it's even more of that kind of engagement of an audience that doesn't necessarily show up uh to be entertained or anything other than they're like well you know there's a concert and i thought i'd go and hear the concert and Mm -hmm. Maybe I like it. Maybe I don't. But it's okay. It's not. Uh, it's not that much. It feels like a certain level. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think there's so. A, there are a lot of people who are die-hard fans, and that's fantastic. But there's also this kind of community of people that just seem to show up. Yeah, hey, it's a concert. I'm gonna listen. It's great. I never heard of these guys, or maybe I, I, I saw Ken Benamark once, and I really enjoyed it. So I thought I'd come again.
2: <laughs> you know,
1: but uh, but it doesn't feel as much of a subculture in a in a weird way mm-hmm. there. And so, but things are always changing there, and country to country is. Big, huge, the big, huge—the Swedish audience and the Swiss audience—in spite of uh, the similarity of their names, are yeah. <laughs> entirely different. <laughs> yeah.
0: Pedal. Um, you're just about the only person I can think of who or one of the only people who in group free improvising context uses the looping pedal. And it's not surprising to me that even though especially in the last 10-15 years, looping pedals I guess have become cheaper for whatever reason, they're much more prevalent in a lot of kinds of music. Um, but not so much in free improvised context, presumably because they impose, you know, something that stops the ability to pivot in any direction. Um, and I want so I just wonder if you have any thoughts about the, that. Your use of that, or whether you're intentionally sort of, I mean, whether related to that sort of antagonism or however you want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're yeah. sorry for no, 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 no. <laughs> no <laughs> I, mean, I mean it in a good way. Yeah, no, I know you do. I know, yeah, I yeah. Know. <laughs>
1: Um, well, uh, you know, I, I view it as an instrument, and yeah. so you know, I, and I, I don't, I hadn't really noticed whether if other people were using it very often in, in whatever context that they use it in. I'm not really interested in the kind of like setup, uh. A little, you know, bass line or ostinato, and just jam on top of that. You know, I mean, I do it at home. It's fun, but you know, uh, it's not really where I want to go with the music. But um, but on the hand, it's just a kind of a, a recording device, and I do use it a little bit to slow me down. Actually, use it about the, to keeps from pivoting. But you know, I if any sort of criticism that I, among many, one of my top. Self-criticisms would probably be that I'm almost too capable, you know, and so, so it's good to have this thing that can sometimes actually make me, hey, you know, take a moment there. Um, and like in this piece, I used it as a way to really give me a moment in places where I was messing around. We didn't talk about it at all. That's my whole obsession right now is the pickups, but mm-hmm. in my life, but, but, um, but anyway yeah I, I don't know I like the one that I use is nice because I can double or half the speed and I can go forwards and reverse and I can um, make uh, two loops that go simultaneously and so it gives me a lot of flexibility in a way of keeping them sort of uh, rhythmically or identity vague enough that um, that I don't feel like they sort of impose some they're not they're not a uh, machine pushing me as much as they're an instrument that I can use and stop and start and and add like a layer almost like having pedals on an organ or something like that. You know, they're just another layer that I, that I like having, whether if it's authentic cello or
0: not. Yeah, I mean, usually you know, when you use it, it's not like with this periodic, yeah. you know, the loop. It's right. actually kind of a recording right. device. And right. It's very... To have some tape. Ambiguous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's I was, when
1: I went to Manhattan School, uh, we're talking about electronics. <clears throat> um, the first semester, I signed up for uh, electronic music, and the whole time I was there, spent probably part of the reason that I left Music school. After a couple of years, was that I was spending more time in the electronic music studio than practicing cello. <laughs> and um, and then when I went back, it was to study computer music, you know. And uh, but they didn't have a computer music degree, so you had to major in composition, you know. Mm. And, and then the weird thing is that when I went back to study computer music, then they talked me into playing the cello again. I'd quit the cello altogether. But, oh really? When was but, this? Uh, this is uh, I I left Manhattan school in late eighty two, and then. Uh, I was at Brooklyn in uh, fall of 84, It hmm. started there. And so they, they, um, they were going to make me be in the choir, or they said, well, we know you could, used to play the cello. If we give you a cello and you play in the contemporary ensemble, you won't have to be in the choir. So I was like, yeah, all right, all right, I'll do that. And then it was awesome all of a sudden because it's like, hey, you know, I actually really liked always since I was two, I liked playing the cello. I just didn't like Tchaikovsky and Brahms and this mm-hmm. shit. So, mm-hmm. so so, then I started being more and more active as a cello player while I was technically a computer music mm. composition student. And so, so I went back to school to study like as pure electronics as you could and then fell in love all over again with the world of real instruments and real players and working with real humans in real time and, mm-hmm. well, and uh and the computer in those days man if you anybody did computer okay. music in the mid 80s it was score 11 and music five or something mm-hmm. and you know you write this long chain of you know commands and and everything and then you'd hit compile and then you'd wait eight hours and then you'd come back and you hit play mm-hmm. and it'd go like And you go, go, oh, shit, I wanted to go, forgot. I forgot this one negative number there. So, okay, and then you hit compile again, and then you go home, and you come back the next morning, and the super user's like, oh, sorry, there was a fire last night, and uh,
2: we had
1: to restart the whole thing, and, you know, everything's gone, and,
2: Jesus, you know,
1: I worked all semester long for, like, this four-minute-long piece that, you know, you know... Meanwhile I was down at A. Micah Bunker on the Lower East Side, you know, having a blast. With some freaks that I'm still friends with to this day. <laughs>